Amen. Let's take our Bibles, if you would, please, and open them to 1 John chapter 1. And the first thing that I want to do uh, this evening is call your attention to the title of this message. The title is, It's All About God. And I would think after preaching here for nearly, or in the eighth year, that you would very well understand that this has really been the basis of the entire ministry since I've been the pastor. I want people to very clearly understand that we're here to worship God. We exist because of God. We're here for the glory of God. And everything that we do in Berean is not about us. It's all about Him. And you would think that wherever you go to church and wherever you or whatever Christians that you would talk to, that the same thing would be in their minds, that we are here for the glory of God. Their central focus would be what God does for us and who God is. But I think that with most Christians, that's really not the case. Uh, Rarely is that the case. And as I look back in the history of our own church, I think it may be very possible that there are lots of people that even in this church, they didn't understand this whole issue about the glory of God until we started discussing, preaching the doctrines of the sovereignty of God. And that's because there is a a lot of lip service that's paid to the sovereignty of God without really understanding who God is. And I don't think that new converts really grasp this right away because unless they have been instructed specifically about this, our, our attitude is when we first become Christians is what can God do for me? I mean, how, how can I benefit from being a Christian? And our gospel presentations, whether it's in a person's home or at work or wherever you might want to talk with people, you kind of always start out this way. Uh, you start out with, with uh, a, a presentation that convinces people how much better their lives will be and how much more fulfilled they will be if they know Christ as Savior. And you talk about the eternal home that a person will receive in heaven. And, of course, we tell them that they're sinners and uh, let them know that there is a penalty for sin and that penalty was paid by Christ. And I'm not saying that's a bad approach because I don't know that we could actually begin in a much different way. You can't really start out trying to convince people that they need to honor God and worship God if they don't know who God is and they don't understand their their own sinful condition, the, the awfulness of their condition. And really that is the area that the Holy Spirit works on when he regenerates a person and brings them to repentance and faith. And so we don't expect that people would know the details of doctrine and all of these different things, until they first understand the awfulness of their condition. That's just a very fundamental issue of the faith. It's really what saving faith is about. But somewhere along the line, from the time that a person first gets saved to their realization about this salvation, all of our salvation is about the glory of God, somewhere in there, the paradigm has to shift. You have to start teaching people in a different way. And people need to understand why they've been brought to salvation. And we have to understand that the salvation of the sinner is not an end in itself. There's a much higher purpose than that. And the main purpose, the eternal purpose, however you want to put it, is that the salvation of sinners is for the glory of God. And God is glorified. Whenever his creatures will turn all of their attention to him, when all of their focus is directed entirely at him and his purposes. The earth is secondary. Our lives are secondary. Um, Relationships that we have, our families, our jobs, all of that is secondary to this main issue, which is the glory of God. Jesus puts it this way in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, but seek ye first the kingdom of God, and all these things shall be added unto you. 
Seeking first the kingdom is the same as saying that God is primary and all focus has to be put on him. And then when we do that, everything else in our lives will be attended to. So it might surprise you that I would say it in this way, that uh, in this church I don't believe that there was really a sense of what it meant to glorify God because most of the people were still stuck in that paradigm of what can I get out of this? What is the Christian life going to do for me? Every approach that we have to Christianity, uh, if we're not looking at the glory of God, it has self at its center instead of God. And so this is especially true when people get up, caught up in a legalistic approach to, to their worship. Christian service is always going to be centered in self rather than centered in God. So if the preaching consistently focuses on dress issues and hair issues and lifestyle issues, it rarely moves beyond that inward focus. The purpose of doing those things to the person becomes, this is what it takes to make God happy with me. And when God is happy with me, then God will bless me. In other words, your service becomes mechanical so that you do your good deeds and you act the way that you should in order to produce the best result for you. And you see what I'm talking about? That's how it, begin, it still centers in you and not in God. Now, of course, there's nothing wrong with dressing right. Christians should dress right. There's nothing wrong with living right and talking right. We ought to do that. But the reason you do it is skewed when your purpose is to get a product out of it, a result that ultimately terminates in you. This is what I do to be Christianized. This is what I do to be recognized. It's what I do to fit in. And so the constant hammering on those kinds of issues produces people who have a middleman between them and God. Uh, they first serve themselves in order to serve God. So really the middleman actually becomes them. They don't do all, the glory, all to the glory of God to be directed at God, but they deal with the self-issues first in order to get to God. So satisfying self comes first, and it helps them to achieve their personal benefit, and then from there it goes to God. Now, I don't know if that makes sense to you at all, but essentially it's not working for God. It's working for self to get God to work for us. Now, here's what happens when you think like that. The first thing that happens in the church is you get judgmental people. Now, I'm not going to really deal with that issue tonight. But secondly, you get self-worshipping people. And so what they do is they will choose their church based upon worship styles, on the music, on children's programs, on many, many different things, rather than on the issue of glorifying God. And so what they do, they're trying to meet some sort of felt need that they have, and they, and they choose how they're going to worship God and what they're going to do based upon personal preferences. Now, every Christian has to be discriminating because at some point uh, you can get into the areas where m music and worship and programs actually become skewed against the Word of God. And when they reach that point, they, they begin to affect the person's theology, and then you can't worship God even if you wanted to. But for most people, they'll never get all the way to the theology issues, not to that part, because they're concerned about all the other things. They're concerned about whether their preferences are met and whether, again, they're going to have all their uh, felt needs taken care of. And so that becomes a self-worship and not God-worship. And so this is where uh, many churches are lacking. It's why there are divisions in churches. There's, there's selfishness. Because most of the time we're worshiping self. And when you have hundreds of little gods that people are worshiping instead of the God, then you're always going to end up with problems and a church is not going to grow spiritually. So what's the answer to all that? Well, the answer is to take new converts, once they've come to know Christ, and then begin to switch them. 
you begin to cultivate the faith that God has instilled in them, the repentance through their repentance, through their regeneration, and you begin to teach them why that they are special objects of God's grace and why the Holy Spirit has spoken specifically to them. He saved them for his own purpose and his own glory, not theirs. And so now everything in their lives is to be channeled in that direction. Now what happens is when you teach people that they have been saved by their decisions, and they're saved because they've made good choices that others didn't make, and they're saved because they cooperated with God, then you have ready-made problems. Because if you have self in salvation, it ultimately is going to be self in service. So what happened then when we began to emphasize the glory of God and we began to teach the truth that everything's about him? What happened when uh, we started learning that we have no part in our salvation, that salvation is all God from top to bottom? What happens when you begin to realize that? I think the best way that you could put it is that it unshackles you. It releases you from the burden of performance and pleasing preachers and pleasing the system and fitting in. It changes you to the joy of serving God because it pleases him. It glorifies him. So you serve God not because you have to, but because you want to. Now, I could put it this way concerning things like dress issues. Um, That's one example that I could give. Uh, You've been taught in this self-system that ladies... Our young people, for instance, should not put on skin-tight, body-hugging jeans that reveals every mole that's on the body. And so you're told that you can't participate in activities, you can't go to the youth conference, you can't go to camp, uh, you can't do any of that unless you meet the standard of the fundamental issued clothing. And so that's what you do. You go out and you look for the right clothes because above all, what you have to do is to conform. And so you dress like other people dress or else you're not a good Christian. And so you end up serving self or serving that fundamental system that you live under where the preachers and the brethren and all that sets the standards for everything that's godly. Now the truth of it is, again, it is absolutely right that you should dress properly. But you don't dress that way in order to be a Christian. You dress that way because you are a Christian. And so you don't worry about whether somebody's going to judge you over it or whether you're conforming to someone's system. You have your focus on glorifying God and you become yielded to the Spirit and you become Christ-like and you realize doing that is what glorifies Him. And the liberating factor that's in this is because you want to do it, not because you're told to. And the same thing is true if you're talking about witnessing to people. In some churches, there's a requirement. You're expected to produce so many new converts, and they don't care how you do it. You have to have somebody walking the aisles or meeting the quota, or else you're made to feel like a failed Christian. And I know by personal experience that there are some churches that if you don't follow the exact guidelines, if you're not there for the soul-winning programs, and you're not with them on the dress and the social issues and the agenda that they have, you're never going to be allowed into the inner sanctum of fellowship. So if you don't perform, you don't get in. And so what people do then is they begin to perform. And they keep performing and they keep up the pretense of this, not because they love God, because they're told that this is what you have to do in order to be a good Christian. And so there's no joy in that Christianity. And they end up being miserable Christians because they're nothing more than performers. They've been taught that in order to be accepted by God, you have to hit the goals and you have to live up to the standard. 
And folks, that has nothing at all to do with New Testament Christianity. You're not going to find that in the Scriptures. The motive for our service to God is one singular issue. Everything that we do is about God. It's all for His glory. And we serve Him only because we love Him. And we seek His kingdom, we glorify Him because God deserves to be glorified. And so to have your thinking right, you have to have that ingrained within you that you must forget yourself and concentrate on God. I think one of the greatest fallacies of the way that people are approached with Christianity is exemplified in the Christian crusade approach, um, campus crusade approach, I should say. And probably most of you have seen their tracks that begin with the statement, God has a wonderful plan for your life. And as soon as you say that to someone, their attention is immediately turned toward self. And the next question is, is if God has a wonderful plan for my life, then what can God do for me? What's in it for me? What can I get out of my Christianity? Whereas what we're trying to teach is that God has a wonderful plan for you to glorify him. So what would be the next question that you would ask when you're told that? Well, you would ask, then what do I do to glorify God? And you see a difference in that? The focus has changed, and it becomes God's salvation and not our salvation. Now, lest you think that I don't know what I'm talking about here, and there was really no need to shift our church's thinking, then you need to come and sit in my office sometime, because you, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't believe how many times that people have come in, sat down with me, and said over and over and over again, I've been a Christian for many, many years, and I never knew what it meant to glorify God. I never knew that my salvation was all about God instead of being about me. And if you could sit where I would sit, where I sit, you would hear people say, uh, I have a whole new outlook on life now. I'm never going to go back and live under that old system again. And so you know what's happened? It's a fundamental change in the view that we have of God and man. It's an entirely new worldview. It's a totally different soteriology. Now, soteriology means the doctrine of salvation. But what we haven't done, we haven't changed salvation by grace alone, uh, through, by grace through faith alone. We don't change that. But what we have changed is the realization of what grace is and where that faith comes from. Grace can never admit to anything on my part. It's like an illustration that I used some time ago, a long time ago, about the old country boy that wanted to become a preacher and he was sitting in front of the ordination council, and he was asked to give a testimony of his faith. And they said, how were you saved? And he said, well, I did my part, and God did his part. Well, for most ordination councils, that would fit right in with their theology. Uh, but not this one, because they knew something was wrong with that. And so they said, you better explain yourself. And he said, well, I did my part. I was running away from God as fast as I could. And God done his part. He done run me down. And that's about as simple as you can get on this issue. That's when you see God correctly and you see you correctly. There was no cooperation on your part until God ran you down. God had to get hold of you first. Now there's an interesting little twist on a scripture that we have that illustrates this. In John 6:44, Jesus made this statement. He said, No man can come to me except the Father which hath sent me draw him, and I will raise him up at the last day. The word draw is the same as translated as drag. No man can come to me except the Father which has sent me drag him. Now thank the Lord for this. He doesn't have to hog tie us and pull us in. 
He doesn't draw us against our will, but what God does, he changes our will so that when he pulls, we're saying, God, please pull a little bit harder. Now you'll say, what does all that have to do with what we want to talk about tonight? Well, all of that is introduction that I hope will help you to understand more about what I'm going to say in a moment. Verse number 5 is a text verse tonight. This then is the message which we have heard of him and declare unto you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. To say that God is light and there is no darkness is to present all at once that God is the source of all. He is the illumination of all. He's the truth of all, the intelligence of all, the stability of all, the vision of all. God is all in all. And that statement does not say that God is like light or he's similar to light. God has qualities of light. It says God is light. Now in the scriptures, light represents holiness, righteousness, intelligence. It really encompasses the whole reality of existence. Take a look at Genesis chapter 1. It says in verses 2 and 3, And the earth was without form and void. And darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. On the first day, there was light. Because without light, there is no comprehension. There's no reference point. There's, there's no distinction. Light comes and it changes everything. Light is what makes things real. And so when we say that God is light, it's the same thing as saying that God is everything. All focus is on God because God is light. Another illustration I gave you some time ago was uh, maybe help us with this point is if you've ever been down in a cave, uh, gone down into a cave where they turn the lights out. In Mammoth Cave in Kentucky, they take you way down into uh, one of the deepest parts of the cave and there are hundreds and hundreds of miles of passageways in Mammoth Cave. It's the longest cave in the world. But they take you down to this cave, and one of the things that they do is they gather everyone into a huge room there, way down and deep in the cave, and they turn out all the lights. And they tell you that they want you to cover up any light source that you have. So even if you have a luminescent face on your watch, you have to cover that up. And you sit there for just a moment, and there's no light that penetrates anywhere. Now, usually when you're in the dark, your eyes will begin to adjust to the dark because there is some light from somewhere. I mean, in your bedroom at night or whatever. It may be dark at first, but soon your eyes adjust to that light. But in this cave, you're so far down, there are no light sources. And you could sit there forever and you'd never be able to see anything. Your eyes will not adjust to the dark because there is no light of any kind that penetrates it. And so one of the things that the ranger does, if you sat there for a few minutes and you realize you're holding your hand up in front of your face and you're looking around, you can't see anything, is that in one moment there, he takes out a little bitty pin light, just a little bitty pin light, and he shines that light. And suddenly the focus of everybody in that room, this huge room, hundreds of feet of cross and many, many people there, all of their attention turns and focuses on that one little bitty pin light. Now, the Bible describes our lost condition similarly. When it talks about us being in darkness, it, it really means that as long as we live, we'll never be able to see the light of the truth of God and who God is um, unless that light should shine to us, unless God should reveal himself. We're going to get that, to that in just a moment. But nothing matters at that moment when that ranger turns on that light. I mean, all the focus goes to that. And when we say that God is light... 
That's what we mean. And maybe that helps you get a better, better picture. God is light. There, there's no darkness in him. Now, it's really a, a simple concept, and yet I think one of the most profound that we find in the Scriptures, that what you can't do, you can't call light darkness. And if you stare directly into the light, you're never going to see shadows in the light. The light may cast a shadow, but the light always reveals what's in the dark. But the light can never be dark itself. And so when John says that God is light or God is holy, then it means that you can't fit anything in there that looks anything other, looks like anything other than light. And so when you think about the attributes of God, his immutability, his omniscience, his truthfulness, his transcendence, on and on you could go. God can't be anything other than what he is. And so that's why he gives his own name and describes his name this way. He says, I am that I am. He can't be anything other than what he is. He's the focal point. And so everything goes to him. And when you get that picture, you begin to understand that you and I are pointless except for one thing. And that is to point him out. And God's purpose in saving us is to change us from those people who will not point him out to those who will point him out. And that's what it means to be created for his glory. And that's what it means to say that God is light. And so I could talk about a hundred doctrines, and every one of them will have this at its core. It goes back to him. And so I can speak of, of, of atonement and justification and sanctification, of glorification. I speak of our salvation, of baptism, church membership, soul winning. It doesn't make any difference what we're talking about. All of it goes back to God. It all leads back to the source of, of all light, the source of everything, which is God. Now, I can go on and on with these kinds of things. You, you, you just have to have this instilled in your mind. It has to be burned down in you that it's all about God. And when you get that, it means that there's no room for any pettiness between you and me. And there's no room for all these little preferential issues that divide us because those things are about you and they're about me. They're not about God. And so God has no concern for those. So I get very concerned when I hear about people who quit serving God. I don't like it when I hear 15,000 excuses why people are doing other things instead of coming to church on Sunday. Those are people who have forgotten what it's all about. And what they're doing is serving self. They're serving their egos and their feelings and their opinions. And none of that is about God. And so when you figure all this out, that's when you're changed. You start to serve the Lord because you realize this is what you are all about. You're all about him. And that's why you're here. You know, I remember watching a television show once um, about a computer that had run amok. And this computer was, was this artificial intelligence, of course, that had become smarter than human beings. And that wouldn't be too smart for some people. But uh, this, this uh, computer had become smarter than anyone, and it was running everybody's life. And people didn't know how to shut this thing off. I mean, every time they go to shut it off, the computer was one step ahead of them. It wouldn't let them do it. So one time, somebody decided that what they would do was go over there and just type a question on the keyboard. And the question that they typed was, why? And all of a sudden, this computer started performing millions of calculations at once. It was whizzing and banging. And finally, it started smoking, and the computer blew up. Well, what they'd done, they'd asked this supercomputer the same question that we have been teaching here for the past eight years. The, the question is, why? And the answer to the question is, God. It's the same thing as saying, God is light. The answer to why is God. 
And that's all that it takes. God is the why. Well, that sort of seems obvious to us now, but there are generations and generations of lost people who never get this. And sadly enough, there are many, many Christians who only glance at this superficially and they never really get understanding of it. And so they just forget it. So what we have to do then is we have to look a little bit further into this and see how do we come by the information. I mean, how do we know God? The Bible says that God is light, but how are we going to know this? Now, everybody um, knows God or think that they know him in some way, but everybody doesn't know him in the right way. And so we're going to get into the outline now for a few minutes tonight, and it's pretty simple when you combine everything that I've said in this long introduction. There are two concepts about knowing God. One of them is incomplete, and the other is complete. And what John is doing, he's arguing against heresy that's been fostered by those who have incomplete knowledge of God. So we first want to look at incomplete knowledge. And incomplete knowledge is the realization of God. The psalmist said in Psalm 14:1, The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Now, the usual interpretation of that verse would be, the fool has said, no God. Or another way of putting that would be, the fool has said no to God. But I think it would be just as true, and I I doubt that you would find a commentator who would dispute this, that the fool says, there is no God. And I'm not really going to talk about those fools, because out of the six or seven billion people in the world, those kinds of fools are very minuscule in number. Everybody else knows that there is a God. Well, there are two main arguments for knowing God, and the arguments are causality and morality. And there there are others, but those are the two main philosophical arguments. So we're going to talk about those tonight, uh, part of the message. The first one is causality. Now, that's also called the cosmological argument, which says that because there is a universe and we can see it, then it's obvious to us that the universe didn't just appear. Something had to cause it. The first cause is God, and so that's why we call it causality. Now, there's some people who try to refute that argument, and they'll say, well, we don't really need to think of it in those terms because matter is eternal. But an argument like that doesn't really satisfy us very much because that's really too big for us to wrap our heads around. And that's why when you tell kids that God created everything, then the first question they ask you is, well, who created God? I mean, we we always figure that because something exists, that it had to come from something. And then there are others who admit that God exists, but they say that creation does not prove that the creator is the Christian God. And there is some truth to that, and we'll see that in just a moment. So causality says that since there is something, and that things are ordered, and things function logically, then there must have been a first cause, which is God. But that's incomplete, isn't it? I mean, even if we get it right that the first cause created everything's, everything ex nihilo, which means out of nothing, it still doesn't tell us who this God is. And so that's incomplete knowledge. So causality, even though it might prove the existence of God, if you want to accept it, it's not going to tell us who God is. The second argument is the argument of morality. And the moral argument reasons that since man knows the difference between right and wrong, and we find that to be universally true no matter where you go, that there had to be someone before us who created us and instilled in us a standard of law that that told us the difference between right and wrong. 
And we know that it can't be by accident because all men in all history, in all of history, have lived by the law. Well, there are people who object to that, and those are people who are moral relativist, and they say that society is what decides morality. All truth is subjective, and it's relative truth. Now, to me, that's a hard argument to defend because we all know that there are two universal laws that govern, govern all people. And those two universal laws you know very well, which are we are to love God and we are to love our fellow man. All societies have some form of that, but they don't have it completely. Now, love, in, in these cases, is downgraded uh, to nothing but fear. And so people will fear their God. And then love for man has been downgraded to, I can do anything to you but kill you. And people know that you're not supposed to kill other people. So even the worst of heathens know that there is a God, and they serve their gods out of fear because they at least believe this, that if they please their God, that their God, he or she, whatever it is, will be benevolent to them. And they also know instinctively that killing people is wrong, not necessarily because they love them, but can be based upon degrees of lesser and lesser hate. It just depends on how ordered the society is. So others will argue against the moral argument, and they'll say, well, there, if there is a God and he's given us a moral standard, then how can evil exist? And the answer to that would be that, well, we know that um, we're living by a moral standard, and we wouldn't even know that unless the opposite of it existed. We don't know what right is, except we define it by what's wrong and vice versa. And so that argument becomes moot. We can't even talk about morality unless we know that something exists called immorality. So here you have then another area where you have nothing more than the realization of God. So we figured out that God exists, but it doesn't tell us who God is. So realization is incomplete knowledge. So to understand God, we have to have more than realization. We need complete knowledge. And complete knowledge is the revelation of God. Now here's where we come to John's argument. True knowledge and complete knowledge comes from revelation. And John's argument would be that true knowledge of God can't come from deduction. You can't deduce God from any philosophical argument and really know who God is. You'll never understand him completely. The only true knowledge of God is when God reveals himself. In other words, God has to tell us who he is. And that's why the Bible is never concerned about proving God's existence. The Bible does not start out in the book of Genesis with a long, protracted philosophical argument about why God exists. That's already assumed. We already know that. And so what God did, he just cut to the chase, and he began to tell us about who he is. He, he gave us a revelation, he tried, he, or he revealed himself to us. So what is God's revelation of himself? Well, the scriptures teach that God's revelation is, first of all, the person of Christ. God speaks to us in Christ. Hebrews says, God who at sundry times and in divers manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son whom he hath appointed heir of all things by whom also he made the world. So God started out revealing himself to the prophets and the message that he gave them was about Jesus. And the whole Bible is written to reveal Jesus. I'm fascinated by Old Testament types and figures. And the one that, that is really, really the most fascinating to me is when we look into the study, study of the tabernacle. 
Moses was God's greatest prophet of the Old Testament. And he was given the greatest revelation of Jesus Christ. And that was in the pictures and the symbols and the types of the tabernacle. In John 1, verse number 1 through 3, we have John's way of saying that God has revealed himself. Those three verses tell us that he has revealed himself through Christ. And that's also the message that we find in the first chapter of the Gospel of John. But what if we were to say, well, okay, you're saying that God reveals himself through Christ, but the truth of it is that God actually reveals himself through the Bible. We have the Bible that we can read. And that's all right, because when you say that, it's the same thing as saying that God reveals himself through Christ, because Jesus is the living word. The Bible is about him, and so if we say, well, the Bible tells us about God, well, what's the subject? The subject is Christ, and so we still have the same thing. God is revealed through the person of Christ. So the complete knowledge of God has to come from self, God's self-revelation. You're never going to get this from nature. You can realize him through nature, but you can't understand who God is. You can't know him. That takes revelation. Now, in verse number 5, the text that we're reading tonight, John makes a statement here about how this information gets to us. None of us has ever seen Christ. We, we've not met him in the flesh. And so God is no longer revealing Christ, or revealing us, revealing himself through the incarnation of Christ. And so now, John says, this then is the message that we have heard of him and declare unto you. So he says, we got this directly from Christ when he was in the flesh, and now we're telling it to you. So now we see that the complete knowledge of God, or the complete revelation of God, comes in another way. And that is through the preaching of the gospel. The only revelation that we presently have of God is the preaching of the gospel. The gospel is about Christ. God is light. And how do I know that God is light? Well, I don't pick it up from nature. I don't pick it up from arguments of causality and morality. I can't get it personally from the incarnation. And so I have to get this through the gospel. And when the gospel is preached, this is when God reveals himself to the sinner. Now, I hope you can see we're going somewhere with this. If God is light, he's all in all. Everything centers in him. All wisdom and knowledge and understanding are in him. Life and breath is in him. And the gospel is the way that I know this. Then the gospel becomes the most important entity in the entire universe. The gospel is Christ. Christ is God. And God is light. And so this is why that you find Paul and John and Peter and James and Jude that are very adamant about not letting anyone mess with the gospel. Paul said that those who mess with the gospel are to be cursed. John said, if anybody comes to your house and he preaches a doctrine other than we preach, then you don't let him in. You slam the door in his face and you sick the dog on him. And Jude says to earnestly contend for the faith. He says those who preach otherwise than what the apostles have preached, he describes them as raging waves of the sea, foaming out their own shame, wandering stars to whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. So you wonder then, why is it that we are so concerned about whether the gospel message is, is correct and how that we receive that message is correct? And why are we teaching Things such as you have to be regenerated. Regeneration precedes repentance and faith. And it's not some man out here just deciding one day that he's going to choose God. And that's the way that we come. 
Why, why are we teaching it a different way? Well, it's important to us. We can't skip over it because we've just made this statement that the gospel is the most important entity in the universe. So we can't deviate from the gospel in any way. We have to be absolutely right on the gospel of Christ. And so you have some people that preach today in many of the Baptist churches that repentance, it's not necessary to repent of all of your sins. That all you need to do is repent of unbelief. That is a wrong gospel. And we have to be very careful about that, that we don't let people teach that kind of thing around here. We're not going to tell people that all you do is repent of your unbelief. You must repent of your sins and trust Christ. That means all sin. You have to be willing to do that. So it means, again, that we have to get the gospel right. We have to keep it pure. We have to defend it. And if anybody comes along and they try to flip this thing around from saying that God is light, that God is everything, and that it's all about him, then we have to stop it. And if that means that Osteen comes along and perverts it with a prosperity gospel, then we have to prevent that. We have to stop that. If Oral Roberts comes along and he perverts it with fake healing and all of those things that go along with it, we have to stop that. We, we can't have that here. If Benny Hinn perverts it with the little God's doctrine, and you may not even know what that means, the little God's doctrine says that, same thing that Kenneth Copeland teaches, that, that uh, you are a little God yourself. And you can speak things into existence if you have enough faith. You are a little God. Well, that's a perversion of the gospel of Christ. Looking at man in the wrong way. So we wouldn't let Osteen do it. We're not going to let Oral Roberts do it. We're not going to let Benny Hinn do it. We're not going to let Kenneth Copeland do it or any of those. But I'm telling you also, we cannot let Baptists pervert it either with synergism. We can't do it. It's all about God. God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. And that is the very same thing as speaking of God's holiness and his righteousness, his illumination. The true gospel of Christ shines the light on God only and always on God. And so we never want to get caught up in anything other than this, the glory of God. Complete knowledge is to know Jesus Christ through the gospel. And when you know him, nothing else compares. And so you don't ever think that this was about you God created you for him. And so you don't ever think of it this way. You don't think about what can I get out of my salvation. The proper response is what will God get out of my salvation. And only then do you truly understand it's all about him. And that's the message that we want to preach. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to preach your word tonight. And sometimes the way that we approach these things may be a little bit difficult to grasp at first, and the reasoning may seem a little bit difficult. But our main point here, and always will be, that since you are light, you are the focal point, there is no darkness in you, that when we focus on anything, it has to be to put out the darkness that's around us and to look only at the light of Jesus Christ, only at that one light. And so we realize that in our salvation, we have no part in that. We need not complain about any intention that you may have, about any plan that you may have, whatever purposes that you may have, because this is all yours. You formulate it all. So we we have no right to reply against God. As the Apostle Paul said, "How, how can we say, why have you made me thus? So Lord, I pray that you'd help us to understand this in a better way. Help us that we might worship you and honor you 
put ourselves in the background all of the time and keep our eyes totally focused upon you and serve you because we love you, because we want to, and not because somebody has forced us to or because we think that's the way we're going to be acceptable. We serve you because we love you. Thank you for your people and their understanding of these truths. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.